fated breath that Africa observers watched Kenya head to the polls on 9th of August. Previous elections were associated with violence, allegations of rigging, and hotly contested appeals of results. This year, William Ruto defeated Odinga with a slim majority, a prediction previously reported on by this news service. On Monday, 22nd of August, Odinga filed a motion requesting the Supreme Court nullify the results, giving the seven justices until 5th of September to deliver a ruling. As four members of the Electoral Commission distance themselves from the results and the commission reports attempts to attack its staff, the political dust is very much yet to settle. Charles, you've closely monitored the election. Could you please outline your findings about the conduct and the results? Well, thank you very much. Um, It was close. Everybody knew it was going to be close. And it turned out that way. 200,000 votes in total between the two candidates out of uh, more than 14 million votes cast. So really pretty tight. Obviously, the court is still to rule on whether that presidential ballot was was legitimate or not. Um, there were no signs of open repression, no no obvious, you know, targeted violence at one side or the other. Um, no obvious stuffing or abuses. Um, the election on the whole seemed pretty good presidentially. Um, the turnouts were not unreasonable, um, around about the 65% rate, which is significantly lower than in previous elections and is actually both a positive and a negative sign. Positive in the sense that very high turnouts tend to indicate somebody has found a way to stuff the ballot. Uh, Lower turnouts indicating a degree of disassociation, particularly amongst younger communities, with the entire electoral process, which is something we see in many societies, and Kenya's the same. Um, But but the results seemed pretty good. Um, Independent counts all gave results pretty similar to those that were announced by the Electoral Commission. So there was an independent parallel vote tallying by an internal organization called ELOG, which gave a result almost exactly the same. And because the Electoral Commission published all their their Form 34As, which are the individual 46,000 polling stations, anybody with the time and energy to add up 46,000 numbers times two could quite quickly determine roughly who had won which ironically was what what the media did. So three or four media organisations were running tallying of the Form 34As as the count continued. Unfortunately, they all decided to stop at the same time. Now, uh, theories as to why that might be differ, um, but one of the reasons is that they all figured out at a certain point who had won and thought, oh, this is not politically what we had expected and I don't want to be the one to announce it. In other words, they did not wish to cause disaffection or or otherwise, you know, cause concern. So they stopped all of them within about two hours of each other and then handed over the Electoral Commission to the Electoral Commission, the responsibility of tabulating and announcing the final result. So the Electoral Commission did announce the final result, a narrow win for William Ruto. Not only was this a presidential win, there was a very similar pattern in the other elections. So six elections taking place at the same time. President governor, which is a very important role for Kenyans, senator, individual MP, and there's you know multiple MPs in most regions for, for different constituencies in the region, women representative, which is a single reserved seat for women in the county, and then um, local council uh, members as well, which is the lowest level of the, the political system. And the results were pretty consistent between those. So you saw um, a hung parliament, in fact, as predicted, um, 170 to 170, basically, or 168 to 172. Incredibly close result there. Um, 
you know, all to play for. And in the governors and the senators and the other roles, a very similar pattern, 50-50 and then sometimes a plus one. So, yes, yes, come in. Um, Well, I was going to go on to another question, but if you want to conclude, then that'd be great. Yeah. So the the last point I wanted to make was that each party had its regional strengths. They were um, some some parties were stronger in one community than others. But Ruto's victory, if, if it's sustained by the Supreme Court, was based upon, you know, having a strong performance in his home community, the Kalenjin community of the Rift Valley, a pretty strong performance in the Mount Kenya communities, which are the largest single communities in, in the country. So he, he bought about 80% or more of the vote in Kikuyu, Embu, Mero, and Biri, Tharaka communities. And then he basically got 20% everywhere else, at least. So it wasn't an entirely ethnic vote, I'd say, you know, whether there were there were arguments being made that this was Kenya's first non-ethnic vote. I think that's not entirely true, but it is a, it is true that it is no longer able to, a possible to simply predict on the basis of ethnicity where people are going to go. A good twenty percent of voters were voting for reasons that did not appear to be directly ethnic. Thanks. Yes. Okay. And moving on, another thing to consider is that Kenya used to be notorious for corruption under Daniel Arap Moy, who left office in two thousand and two. And Kenya has since improved its reputation for governance, although fallout from the 2007 elections still keeps international investors wary about the risk of political violence. And this likely contributed to the sell-off in Kenya's eurobonds ahead of elections. Ruto was prosecuted for organising the 2007-8 post-election violence and separately for corruption, but never found guilty. So the question I have for you, Charles, is what do you think Ruto represents in terms of the direction of travel for the nature of governance? Hmm. That's a very difficult question to answer in a public forum. Um, William Ruto is much misunderstood, I would say. He is a modern politician. He is an extremely effective political operator, one of the best I've ever seen. Um, He knows what he's doing. This has been planned for 10 years. And I would expect to see uh, cross-cutting trends as we move into the next couple of years, assuming that his victory is sustained, as we always have to say. Firstly, he has won this election on the basis of the economy above all else. Um, And that's quite unusual in Kenya. Um, Previous elections have been fought on many things, but the direct economic situation was not usually one of them. But he won it on the basis of, you know, some very radical promises about bottom-up economic change, not entirely clear what it always meant in practice. But what it means is more seed money for small businesses, for what they called the hustlers, the people living at the margins. And that's what gave him the victory. So I think the economy is going to be very, very important in his strategy. He's got to get the economy working, especially for the poor, in order to survive. I think he's he's staked everything on it. On the other hand, as you correctly pointed out, he is does not have the best reputation in the world for for financial probity and uh, above board dealings in his prior life before becoming the president. So there will be, I'm trying to think of a sensible, a safe way to say this, there will be pressures to recoup some of the costs that have been incurred during the election campaign, because these things are incredibly expensive. I mean, hundreds of millions of US uh, has been spent on these campaigns by the two parties, hundreds, nobody knows exactly, but a very large amount of money. And that's come from somewhere. Some of it will be based on, you know, assets obtained before, some of it will be loans, some of it will be promises and gifts that need to be repaid after the polls. 
So there will be a, there will be temptations in fashions, one fashion or other, to find ways to raid the state coffers. I'm afraid. Yes. Okay. Now, Mark, let's bring you in for the credit perspective because you've been following sub-Saharan sovereigns for years. Where does the election result put Kenya in terms of remaining on track with its IMF program? Thank you, Joe and Charles. That was very interesting. So, yes, I mean, I, I think it is unlikely that the Odinga camp will be able to have the election outcome overturned by the Supreme Court. And so, I mean, I assume that Ruta will, the election result will stand. So, I mean, I've been following a lot of different uh credits across you know, Ghana, Jordan, Nigeria, other, uh, other uh, CMA sovereigns, but I've also I've tried to follow the election campaign as much as I could. And I do agree with uh, uh, Charles' assessment. He's been looking at this uh, very closely where, you know, essentially Odinga, who has previously been the perennial opposition candidate now, essentially represented the the status quo, so I mean, status quo. I mean, it had process of all the disadvantages of the incumbency factor, as he was so closely, so you know, associated him, himself with uh, Kenyatta, the outgoing president, but none of the advantages. But I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, so essentially had this was representing the sort of legacy of the uh, Kenyatta era, where you had some quite expansive fiscal policy for these sort of big four agendas, which you know, food security, affordable housing manufacturing and affordable healthcare that may sound very praiseworthy and worthwhile, but I think the average man and woman has seen very little of this. And you also, in addition to this, had the sort of large, mainly Chinese-financed infrastructure projects and, and rail and road infrastructure. And Ruta, on the other hand, his rhetoric has kind of signaled that he would move away from this borrowing spree and, you know, also talking, you know, making... Uh, some difference uh, with Odinga, who mentioned that, you know, he would try to uh, uh, restructure, renegotiate some part of Kenya's external debt, while, while uh, Ruta signaled that he thinks uh, Kenya's debt is still uh, sustainable, he will not renegotiate it, and he will cut back cut back this borrowing spree. So my assumption is that Ruta will aim to continue the fiscal consolidation achieved in fiscal year 21-22, which just ended in June, and look to uh, become more expansive towards 2027 when he will be up for re-election. So I highlighted in a red report published last week that the budget deficits, including grants, came in at 6.3% of GDP in FY uh, 2021 against a targeted deficit of 8.2% of GDP. This is according to the latest quarterly economic and budgetary review for the April to June period. This are still preliminary figures, and I think it's quite likely that the expenditure figures will be revised up. For instance, there have been reports about the government owing substantial sums to oil marketeers for them selling fuels uh, fuel at regulated prices below cost recovery. But I still think this of the fiscal figures, the sort of preliminary fiscal figures, and Ruta's pledge to halt the borrowing spree and increase the incomings for the Kenyan revenue authorities indicate that there is a high likelihood that Kenya will stay on track of its IMF program. We had an, uh, the uh, review just uh, passed in, in uh, July, just before the election. This program runs to mid-2024. So Kenya's government revenue came in at 17.6% of GDP and uh, FY21-22, according to these preliminary figures. This is the highest since 2016, 2017. 
And uh, I mean, this needs to go, ideally you'd like to see this figure go higher still in coming years towards the uh, kind of GDP, revenue to GDP levels you had earlier in the 2000s. And I think it's worth mentioning that sort of devolution process uh, that started with the 2010 constitution has, in my opinion, been a, a success on the political level and that Kenyan elections are no longer sort of a winner-takes-it-all game. And a lot of voters are more focused on the elections of county governors and other regional officials they think are more likely to bring their material benefits in terms of, sort of public service delivery at, you know, in the districts they, they live than a uh, focus on the uh, presidential vote and essentially getting the right candidate, well, a candidate from your ethnic group into there and hope that that will benefit all, which, you know, has been a strong factor previously, but far from everyone in, in Kenyatta's Kikuyu group have actually benefited from having a Kikuyu president. And I think that's one of the reasons why Ruto did fairly well. He managed to win these voters there, uh, especially the poorer ones. But I mean, the downside to this devolution process, it, it has more or less added three percentage points of GDP to Kenya's recurring expenditure. I mean, that's the sort of level of uh, spending that is on the county government level. And even though, you know, this has led to improvements in public service delivery, it's so far been debt financed. Uh, you have a sort of increase in, in uh, Kenya's uh, budget deficits over the past uh, decade or so that this um, uh, new new political structure where the county governments have been in place. And this needs to become revenue financed either through century collected revenue revenue or revenue raised by county governments themselves. I mean, I could talk for a long time about this, but if anyone's interested in learning more, I can recommend the work of the International Budget Partnership uh, and the Kenyan Parliament Budget Offices on the area of government financing. But to sum up on the, on the fiscal side, I think, Getting the budget deficit down to 4.4% of GDP by FY24-25 as targeted in this IMF program will be challenging, but I think it's more realistic to have a deficit outcome closer to 5.5% 5, 5, 5 of GDP by FY24-25, you know, which is kind of when you could expect uh, fiscal policy to turn more expansive ahead of the 2027 elections. But I personally think this is sustainable deficits considering that Kenya, well, if Kenya can retain sort of decent growth momentum of uh, 5 6% uh, in real terms, maybe 10% in uh, 10 12% in nominal terms during this period. And if we switch over to uh, credit ratings, sovereign credit ratings, I think it might be a question of too little, too late when it comes to prevents at least one sovereign downgrade from either Fitch and Moody's. Uh, these two rating agencies have had Kenya on a negative outlook since May and June 2020, respectively. So these outlooks on the credit ratings are normally resolved in a sort of 18 to 24 month period. And uh, clearly we're beyond that. Um, and I think it's, yeah, I mean, time for these. Well, I think I expect these agencies both to kind of come to a decision within the next uh, next six months, essentially. I mean, I think it's understandable there was some caution during this period because, we, of course, we had the COVID pandemic uh, increasing a lot of volatility, and you also had the election outcome, which, which uh, does impact on that. And uh, both these agencies have made statements, uh, both these rating agencies have made statements following, uh, well, I should, should mention that Fitch rates Kenya B+. 
and while Moody's rates Kenya to what B flat, uh, they've both issued statements after the elections, essentially highlighting the fiscal risk from election uncertainty, and I think overall taking quite a harsh view on the outcome outlook. I think it's interesting that Fitch published a commentary on on Wednesday with a headline, uh, Kenya's election outcome may complicate fiscal consolation, where they state that, and I'm quoting now, the differences between economic policy approaches advocated during the campaign by Odinga, whose party will hold the plurality in the new parliament, and Ruto suggests securing enough parliamentary support to pass future budgets with reduced deficit targets could be challenging. Uh, So I highlighted, I read this, and I I kind of... uh, just focused on them saying that Odinga's party would have a plurality in the new parliament, because I just read uh, Charles' blog where he mentions that the UDM party and some independents and also some from Odinga's coalition had, since the election, it was since it became clear that Ruto would win the presidential, well, was most likely win the presidential election, has defected, and that Ruto's uh, Kenya Kwanzaa coalition actually will have a, a slim majority, will most likely have a slim majority in parliament as things stand, I, I did uh, highlight this for, for Fitch. Uh, they didn't get back to me on this, uh, but they've since taken down that particular piece of commentary from their website. So not sure what for reason is, but it's at the moment a bit unclear what uh, Fitch's view on Kenya's policy outlook is. So finally, yes, I just okay. want to mention okay. that uh, guessing rating movements is always a bit tricky. I was personally very surprised about Fitch and Moody's downgrade in Namibia and 2Q. Uh, despite recent offshore oil discoveries fundamentally improving the credit for mantles for the country. But if I had to guess, I think Fitch will probably downgrade uh, Kenya to B-flat and Moody's will shift the outlook back to stable. I personally don't think Kenya is a B-minus credit, and I think you could over next year see Kenyan eurobonds trade closer to as a Benin, which is rated as B-plus credit, and as eurobond yields even for the 2052 bond is uh, currently trading in single digits, although I should mention this is not to be viewed as uh, as investment advice. So Charles, I, I just wanted to ask you if there any anything to act, add on the impact of devolution and, and county government politics. Let me come in first on something you mentioned earlier on about yeah. what, what people say during the campaign and then what they do when they come into power. I don't see any necessary connection, unfortunately, between them. Um, It is so very easy to walk in and say, oh, the coffers are empty. I had no idea. Um, I didn't realise the previous government had left it in such a bad state. Yes, all those promises I made. Yes, sorry about that. Looks like you're going to have to wait a couple of years. And it wouldn't be the first time that this has been done. So we will see if there's a, a calm and phased and successful transition what position in those early days the new cabinet secretaries and the president and the deputy president take on, you know, to what extent they're going to try and do what they said they did to get elected, what they would said they would do to get elected, I'm not sure. On on the sort of devolution, yes, debt financing, very interesting. Um, not surprising, unfortunately, the 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 fear was always that county governments would decentralize corruption um, and replace one sort of great big spider by 47 smaller ones. And I think to some extent that has happened. Um, it's quite open, in fact, that it's jobs for the boys, literally, um, that um, the people who come in um, make sure that their 
particular communities, subgroups, supporters uh, benefit disproportionately. And if they take too much too visibly, then the community kick them out and put the other guys in. So there is a there is a control on it and it is a genuine competition. It's not like a single party state regime or anything, but it is predicated upon the idea that local people will benefit most and the people who are closest to the governor will benefit most of all. Just to go back to debt financing, Mark, how do you fancy Kenya's chance of refinancing the 2024 Eurobond? Yes, I mean, I think it can be argued that Kenya has more of a liquidity issue than a solvency issue. And I think this is, you know, fundamentally distance, uh, different than, for instance, Ghana. So the 2024 bond is uh, currently, it was currently trading at 14.5%, as uh, indicated by Eurobonds. This is... Uh, compared to 4 to 3 4.3 4.4% at the beginning of the year making it among the most worst performing in sub-Saharan African eurobonds this year so i think only Ghanaian eurobonds have traded worse despite being in distressed territory at the beginning of the year so it's not entirely easy to unpick the driving factors behind the decline i mean i think it's a combination of a general sell off in risk assets across markets because of the us fed hiking rates and also kenya kenya being disfavored by higher oil prices as it's a net oil importer. But historically, Kenyan risk premiums have increased ahead of elections. I mean, the previous 2017 elections is the only one, only polls since Kenya become a, became a Eurobond issuer in mid-2014. But you've seen that Kenyan shilling has historically sold off ahead of elections. And you could expect a bit of stability, a bit of sort of a mean reversion following the elections. But I think it is likely i mean that's yeah i think it's likely that kenyan eurobonds yields will normalize if if the supreme court decision ahead of 5th september uh, is essentially upholding elections i mean at least compared to peer countries and uh, i think at the same time it's it's likely that le- the yields will remain elevated elevate on an absolute level i don't think they're going to go back to 4.3 or 4.4% as they were at the beginning of early this year, as you know, we main, main general expectations are that the US Federal Reserve will keep hiking rates later this year. So, I mean, this means that it is unlikely that Kenya will be able to return to the Eurobond market for, I would say, at least the next year or so. So previous administration has stated that it wanted to sell a Eurobond and buy back part of the US, USD, uh, well, a 2 billion Eurobond uh, maturing in, in June 2024 to avoid this hump in external financing requirements that they have. And I was surprised that in Kenya's last, last Eurobond issue in June 2021, they only chose to sell a US, uh, sell 1 billion in US dollars uh, when they could have quite easily have sold 2 billion and bought back a significant part of 2024 Eurobond if they were just prepared to uh, pay just a little bit more for the you know, higher interest, except higher interest rates for those bond issues. What has happened since is that the, in the end, there was a lot of talk about them issuing another euro bond in FY21, 2022, which was in the budget. But in the end, you know, there was a lot of, so will they or won't they, and a lot of contrary statements from the Kenyan officials. But in the end, what they did was instead they took up uh, 1.1 billion in syndicated loans which mature in 2025. So that actually adds this kind of refinancing hub you have in the next two to three years, rather than reducing it as was the original plan. 
supported by the IMF. So a presence, it looks like unlikely that Kenya will be able to do uh, this kind of refinance operations that they planned ahead of the 2024 Eurobond redemption or raise new money in the market without some kind of credit advancement. And that's with that, I mean some kind of support from the multilaterals. And I think this is where the idea of using a World Bank instrument called a policy-based guarantee to allow a buyback uh, for, for the government to buy back part of the 2024 at the current below par prices and issue a Eurobond, which would be at, you know, most likely be at lower yields if you had a partial policy base guaranteed from the World Bank. I think this is an interesting idea, which uh, uh, probably is something that government is looking, or at least their advisors will be looking at the moment. So for those who do not know what a policy based guarantee is, then I can refer to a short primer by Clemens Landers and Rakan Abonai from the Center for Global Development, published about a month ago. I think it's uh, well, it's, it's essentially a, a simple form of credit enhancement where the World Bank guarantees part of an amount borrowed by a developing country. Montenegro have done this for Montenegro, Serbia and Benin previously over the past decade. The only instance of such a guarantee being used to support a Eurobond issuance is the US $400 million guarantee, which was 40% of the uh, $1 billion Ghana 2030 bonds sold in October 2015. Uh, when they were uh, also under pressure in the Eurobond market. And I mean, now it looks likely that the World Bank may be called upon uh, this guarantee. So maybe in a way it's not the best president, but I think a similar guarantee would be a very good idea to help Kenya get through this upcoming liquidity or refinancing challenge that they will have in the next uh, two, you know, two or three years and also help them to regain access to the European market. So Charles, yeah. I had a question for you. And uh, one thing I think has become clear in this election and in recent years is the strength of this kind of Ruto party machinery, the United Democratic Alliance. And I'd just like to hear your view on, on the strength of the UDA when it comes to party organizations and campaigning compared to the Jubilee Party, both pre and post Ruto leaving, there was a bit of a tussle and tussle about who actually controlled the Jubilee Coalition. Mm -hmm. And also the ODM uh, of Raila Odinga, which has had previous issues, uh, internal issues, and perhaps also the Kano Party, if we want to go back to the Moy era. So all these parties are to some extent personal. Now, they are also to some extent ethnic, but they're primarily personal. So they, the UDA did not exist until Ruto created it, and it was a vehicle used for his election. Um, they've invested quite a lot in the brand, in the marketing, in the colours, in the presentation, in the T-shirts, in the caps, etc. So I expect it to continue, but it is contingent. A number of governments in the past 20 years have simply abandoned their own party when they were inconvenient. Um, Waikibaki was quite famous for doing that, abandoning the party he was elected on to, to just choose a different brand for, for the next time around. So it's not impossible. UDA had, you. I think that Ruto's side of Jubilee was always the stronger organisationally. I think Ruto himself is, I would say that he, he looks like a workaholic. I would suspect he is. He he is also controlling a lot of the details. Um, I've received anecdotal reports that, you know, from people who were inside that he paid a lot of attention to operational matters in the government. 
um, that he personally saw to certain things taking place, um, which does provide some some basis for his complaints that when things when they started to be frozen out, his side started to be frozen out, that he couldn't any longer be held responsibility for the responsible for the behaviour of the government and its successes and failures. He was clearly taking a very close and direct eye on operational matters, um, fiscal financial matters, procurement matters within within the government. Um, Jubilee was, you know, especially without Ruto, tended to take probably no more than 30% of the previous Jubilee organisation stayed with Jubilee after the split. It was quite an unusual situation in which an incumbent government, an incumbent president, almost defected to the opposition. I mean, they couldn't present it that way, but de facto that's what happened and took kind of 20 to 30 percent of his party with him um, and, and left the, the remainder. Ruto took the remainder. One other thing to mention that may be relevant to the, the, the fiscal future is that Ruto is not popular abroad. Um, as an individual, as, as we said at the beginning, he has something of a checkered history. He's been accused of various crimes and misdeeds. Not a lot of heads of government want to be photographed shaking hands with him. I don't know what direct that effect that will have on, on, on sort of future bond issues and fiscal behaviour, fiscal performance. But I don't think he's going to get any favours from, from, you know, from the West at the moment. Yeah, yeah. that's an Brilliant. Um, Mark, to round us off here, do you have any final thoughts on governance? Yes, I mean, I do have a strong interest in governance. I'm not sure I can call myself an expert in area. So what I've done in recent years is to look at the World Bank's CPIA and WGI ratings, uh, where the data for 2020 is due to be released in the next month or so. So the CPIA stands for Comprehensive Policy and Institutional Assessment and is essentially their assessment of the capability of the governments, of, you know, governments, developing country governments to use World Bank lending effectively support reaching the sustainable development goals. So it's one of the key metrics in deciding a developing countries' access to a concessional financing. And it's also a strong factor in determining whether uh, a low-income country's debt carrying capacity is determined as strong, medium, and weak in the IMFs and the World Bank's debt sustainability analysis report uh, that is uh, uh, in, in the annual reviews of uh, these countries. So Kenya has, over the past two decades, had amongst the strongest scores in Sub-Saharan Africa when it comes to the CPIA scores, which has meant that it has strong access to concessional financing uh, for a range of different projects and so in uh, transport and other areas. Uh, uh, but this lead has been eroded in recent years with countries like Benin and Cote d'Ivoire catching up, as I highlighted in review of last year's scores. And in Kenya, the financial sector score has been a drag in recent years. This has been due to the interest rate cap uh, that was in place from 2016 to 2019. It would be interesting to see if the abolishment of, of this interest rate cap, which by a presidential degree by, uh, by Kenyatta in 2019, will lead to an improvement in the CPA score in September. And I do think financial sector is an area which would be interesting to follow under Ruto. So Equity and Kenya Commercial Bank, uh, two of the biggest, well, the two biggest Kenyan banks, have grown to regional behemoths during the Kenyatta era, strengthening their positions in, in neighboring countries, also expanding into the Democratic Republic of Congo. And this has partly been due to a very sort of friendly regulatory environment. It should be mentioned the Kenyatta family has a 25% stake in Commercial Bank of Africa, so the mid-tier lender. Uh, which Uro Kenyatta's brother Moho is the deputy chairman. And William Ruto does, to my knowledge, not have any sort of 
business interests, any stakes in any Kenyan banks. And I think it'd be interesting to see what stand it takes about the sharp increase in consumer loan defaults, which essentially pits a lot of sort of Ruta's voting base against the big banks. And the other governance ratings metrics I wanted to mention is the World Governance Indicators published by the World Bank uh, at the end of September every year. And this measures the assessment of experts in six areas, which is one, voice and accountability, two, political stability in absence of violence, three, government effectiveness, uh, four, regulatory quality, five, rule of law, and six, control of corruption. So this is a very relevant for any kind of uh, any potential creditor for Kenya area. So the WGI scores and the scores of these subsectors are significant inputs in rating agencies' evaluation of the institutional strength of sovereigns. And they also, uh, also the susceptibility to event risk category. And the WGI ratings don't get a lot of attention despite the direct impact on credit on sovereign credit ratings. And this is also one of the main input factor for the G part of the growing array of ESG ratings uh, concocted by asset managers, research providers, et cetera. So, uh, I mean, this is why I have started to cover these ratings for Red Intelligence and we're doing a review of the CPI and WGI scores in, uh, in coming later in September. So Kenya is also a strong performer in the world governance indicators ratings compared to other sub-Saharan African sovereigns and scores strongly in, in all categories apart from the political stability and absence of violence category, which has been a significant drag on the on Kenya's overall score since the initiation of the WGI ratings in 1996. But it has been especially severe, the dip in this category after the 2007-2008 electoral violence and also the Westgate shopping mall attack in 2013 and the Garissa University College attack in 2015. But this rating has since improved. And I expect this to continue both in the 2021 rating release to be released in coming weeks and also in 2022 if this sort of election does pass without any, any serious violence. So this should be supportive of Kenya's sovereign credit ratings. And uh, although I think the, the fiscal and external accounts uh, will be more important in, in determining credit ratings and also in the views of investors uh, over the next few years. So... Lastly, I'd like to highlight an area which I think gets way too little attention when it comes to the coverage of Kenya and Africa in general, which I also think is a strong reason to be bullish about Kenya over the medium term, and that is education. So the World Bank has in recent years started publishing a, a data set called Learning Adjusted Years of Schooling as part of their Human Capital Index, uh, a new, uh, very interesting data set. And this uh, Learning Adjusted Years of Schooling essentially adjusts the years of average years of schooling uh, with measured outcomes in terms of reading and math skills as some school systems, for instance, Vietnam is an outlier when it comes to this uh, in developing countries. In Vietnam, students learn a lot more in, say, five years, in five years of schooling than in, for instance, Ghana, a country that actually underperforms there. And, and Kenya is also an outperformer if you compare to uh, countries with a similar level of GDP per capita, such as Ghana. And I think it is also a key factor, this kind of Kenyan education system, which of course has its, has its uh, deficiencies, but uh, it's also a key factor in the educational level in, in Kenya. And uh, what we've seen during uh, COVID is a sharp rise in remittances, uh, which are now uh, Kenya's number one foreign exchange income ahead of tourism, coffee and tea and flour exports, which are traditional main earners. 
and, uh, and Kenyans are uh, strongly decide as nurses, doctors, and in managerial positions, not only across Africa, uh, but also in the US, Europe, and Middle East, uh, because of their English skills, a good education and work ethic. And I think this is a strong reason to be bullish on Kenya beyond the next few years, which are likely to be challenging for, uh, for some of the reasons I previously mentioned. And that's it from us. If you've liked what you've heard today, redintelligence.com is providing real-time news, research, and podcasts about high-yield credit across the emerging market space. For now, all that's left is to thank our guests, Mark Boland and Charles Hornsby, and we'll see you next time on Red Talks. <laughs>